At one point during the baptism, the last Lord's Day, I paused mid-sentence. I baptize you in the name of the Father. Long pause. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I did not forget my line. Actually, I choked up right at that point because I saw something I hadn't seen until that moment. Right at that point, my eye fixed on something at the back of the auditorium. I choked up because I saw in that instance a long line of children's church workers with children's church kids watching. There they stood at the back, shoulder to shoulder, peering wide-eyed through the glass doors of the lobby. And it just struck me in that moment how blessed we are as a church to have the priceless heritage of children in our midst. And it struck me that wise children's workers had shepherded our little ones there to witness this baptism and to say to them in a very subtle way, this is really important. This is important enough for us to break routine and to bring you out. Watch what's happening here. And to see those kids watching, their little minds beginning to grasp Christ's call upon us. It was priceless took my words away. And I wonder, do we fully appreciate as a church the exquisite gift that is ours to see children growing up around us like saplings in a forest? They take work, let's admit it. They make messes. They are noisy. It takes skill to engage them, time to teach them, energy to manage them, and love to care for them as a church. It's happening in the homes as well, but as we just talk about the church, it takes work. But what a blessing they are to our community. What a blessing. And so couples of childbearing age, please have more of them. We only announce one birth here today. And looking forward to one. Have as many as you can. Bear them, adopt them, bring them from your neighborhood, get them here. However it takes. Whatever it takes. But seriously, and I actually was serious about that, but may Eden Baptist Church always be a home where children are loved, where they are welcomed, where they are valued and taught and protected and ushered graciously and winsomely to the feet of Jesus Christ. Indeed, ushering children to Jesus is a defining characteristic of a healthy and faithful local church. Skillfully ushering children to Jesus is our calling. And it is a vital way by which we glorify God as a faith community. And may we never forget that our Savior pointedly taught us this. He taught us this stewardship and He made it clear that it is no small matter for any of us. He, as an unmarried man, as a single man, made this point very clear. During His final journey to Jerusalem, think on that phrase, His last hike up the mountain to Jerusalem, Jesus stops on the east side of the Jordan River in order to teach a crowd of followers, I'm sure many things, but certainly in this moment, about marriage. Jesus preaches against the hard-heartedness that leads to divorce. Could have taught, certainly, about what that means to children. As the two are coupled here and also in the book of Luke, the uh, two ideas of divorce and children here in the text and before us in Mark 10. But he preaches against the hard-heartedness that leads to divorce, concluding in Mark 10:9, "...what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate." And after his sermon, Jesus gathered with his disciples. They found rest in a house. We don't know what house, where, 
how exactly this happened, but they are probably in some sense debriefing on the sermon. They're talking about it. They're asking questions about it. They're pressing Jesus to clarify, to explain His teaching about marriage. And as they are talking, parents continue to enter the house and bring their children to Jesus. We pick this up in Mark chapter 10 and verse 13. And we see access denied. Verse 13. And they were bringing children to Him that He might touch them. They were bringing children. The Greek text indicates that people continued to come. They continued to usher and carry children to Jesus. It was customary for parents to bring their children to great leaders to receive a blessing from them. A word of hope in God's grace. And this was especially true on a child's first birthday. It was just commonplace in the rabbinic tradition in the Jewish faith at that time. And this parental agenda is very clearly indicated to us here in verse 13, where it says that they brought their children to Him that He might touch them. Verse 16 indicates what the touch was. Uh, undoubtedly a holding in order to put a hand upon the child, and to pronounce a blessing upon that child. Now all this commotion annoyed Jesus' disciples. Jesus was undoubtedly tired, having taught the crowds, being on the, in the process of journeying, traveling by foot. They were tired, undoubtedly. They had important things to discuss, in fact, and all these kids were getting in the way. These are intense days for this band of brothers. The disciples refuse to face it. They refuse to grasp it. But Jesus continued to talk about dying. And He was heading up to Jerusalem where there were people they knew wanted to kill Him. Jesus had set His face like a flint toward Jerusalem and a Roman cross cast its shadow across all that He says and all that He does on this journey at this point. Jesus has been preparing His disciples for His departure for months now. He's drawn them away as far as conceivable from the crowds that He might invest in them and prepare them for His departure. They may not want it to admit that He was leaving, but there was no question at this point on the journey that they were understanding how often He was trying to get alone with them. And they needed to be alone right now. And all these kids, in light of these realities, the disciples were probably concerned for Jesus. And they conclude this is no time for children to be underfoot. So at the end of verse 13, we read the phrase that the disciples rebuked them. That is, they rebuked all who were responsible for bringing children to Jesus. No matter how sincere their motives, the final effect of the disciples' actions was to deny access to Jesus. That's never a good thing to do. But that's what they did. They denied access to Jesus. Jesus was not okay with that. Their thinking is corrected in verses 14 and 15 as He rebukes them. When Jesus saw it, He was, in fact, indignant, verse 14 says. There's an emotional reaction here. It's not a word that's used, again, of Jesus, but He's indignant. The disciples were displeased with the parents. Jesus was even more displeased with the disciples. Their actions indicated an attitude toward children that actually angered Christ. I think probably the context helps us here to understand His anger. Let's go back to chapter 9 and verse 35. Mark chapter 9 and verse 35, He sat down and called the twelve, and He said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in His arms, He said to them, Whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Pretty clear. To receive a child in my name is to receive me. 
They missed that lesson. They missed its application in this situation, in this house. And so Jesus rebuking them, He's indignant, says, verse 14, Let the children come to Me and do not hinder them. Stop depriving them of access to Me and stop depriving Me of access to them. They are equally important with everyone else around here. And I think that's maybe at the heart of the error. They were treating the children as if they were less important because of their age. Do not hinder them. In the remainder of verse 14, and then qualified in verse 15, Jesus reveals His reasoning on this matter. And in this instruction, he's not, He not only corrects the disciples, but He gloriously instructs us along the way. As verse 14 continues, Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus speaks here as Messiah. God's rule on earth is present in me, and these children have as much claim to that rule as anyone else. The rule of God, mediated through the Lordship of Jesus Christ, was present, and no one was to be denied access, particularly children. Why, Jesus? Why particularly children? He clarifies that in verse 15. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's his reasoning. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. There's two ways of taking that. How do we read that? One way that's fairly common is to say that there's something that's innate in children, something that's natural in children. They possess a necessary characteristic or characteristics that uh, are, are vital to receiving Christ's rule. They are, for instance, trusting. They are humble. They are receptive. They are not filled with a sense of self-achievement, of self-importance. They're not argumentative, something along these lines. The second way of taking this is that children occupy, not the, don't possess the characteristics, but they occupy a position that epitomizes the orientation that we must all assume in order to enter the kingdom of God. And I believe this second notion is closer to the point. Not all children are humble. Not all children are receptive. But all children are weak. They are vulnerable. They are incapable of providing for themselves. Do I need to illustrate this? Children get hurt, right? They get hurt a lot. And when they get hurt, they run to you because they really don't know what to do about it. They don't know if, if this scraped knee means I'm going to die or live. And they need information on that. They don't know how to treat the owie, do they? They they learn pretty quickly that there's things called band-aids and we need those. But we don't know where they are. And if they do know where they are, they don't know how to get them open. They don't know how to apply them. I just have an owie. Help me. They come to you for comfort, not really knowing why they need comfort. Maybe sometimes really not needing it. But they come to you for it. They cannot feed themselves. Right, moms? They cannot launder their clothing. They cannot change their sheets or perform some of the simplest tasks of hygiene. At a certain age, they couldn't wipe their bottoms if their lives depended on it, but they know that you can. They get it. I think that's where Jesus is going here, essentially. Children are in a position of weakness and need. They know They need help. Look at them. Look at their parents. They're coming to me right now to freely receive. And that is the fundamental approach to salvation in God's kingdom. To come in abject spiritual poverty and to say, I need God. Jesus rebuking the disciples is saying, I'm working to bring people to this realization that they need a Savior. These individuals come ready. 
They come in their weakness to receive. And as I speak to some among us, I do so as a friend, but I, if I speak to you as one who has not come to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, you have not been converted as His follower, as His child, it would say to you that the biggest hindrance to your salvation from sin and final judgment could be your maturity. It could be your maturity. As time passes, we tend to grow blind to our sense of spiritual need. And we grow adept at trying to be our own Savior. As you have matured, you grow convinced that you've got this. You know what's right for you. You know what works, what makes you feel good. You know what you should value and how you should live as the master of your own soul. You've got this. The problem, as Jesus would instruct you, as we would encourage you to consider, the problem is that self-dependent, self-determining orientation is killing you. And it's hard to hear it, but we've all got to come to hear it. Our problem is us. My problem is me. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Come to me, not in your pride, not in your self-determining orientation. Come to me as burdened and in need. And take up your cross and follow me. That's setting aside all of self and following Christ as your Savior alone. Do you see that need of a Savior from sin and its oppression? Come like a little child into His arms and rest. That's the call. You notice here that Jesus speaks in terms of reception. Let the children come to Me. Don't hinder them, for of such belongs the kingdom of God. Because whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Verse 15. I say this to you truly. I emphasize this point. All who do not receive the kingdom like a child will not inherit it. To receive, as one commentator puts it, means to receive the kingdom is to allow oneself to be given it. How simple is that, but it's profound. To receive the kingdom is to allow oneself to be given it. Receive what specifically? As the Scriptures unfold and as time unfolds, the reception is of two major points of provision. The first is the death of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of sin. To stand in the sinner's place and to take on that sin and that punishment and to die where we deserve to die. The second is, as we've sung of it here, His resurrection the lion coming out of the cave, as we've sung of it, and roaring in victory over death. That He defeats death and He defeats Satan. This is the message that we embrace. This is now the reception of the kingdom. And we need to receive it. We need to allow ourselves to be given it. I worked some time ago with a Marine. And I was sharing the Gospel with him over time. And I came to the place of saying, I really believe he understands these facts of the death and the resurrection of Christ. I don't think there's anything more that I can really do to highlight the truth here. But he just continues to reject it, will not receive the Kingdom of God. And I... I just I don't always do this. You could be patient with somebody for 20 years and just stay with it. But I just thought in this situation it just made sense. I just told him one day, there's one simple problem here, and that is that you are too proud to receive the gift of life. 
Your pride is in your way. Your pride is a block, and there is nothing I can do to move that pride. I think he's a bit offended, uh, but he's a Marine. He could take it. He walked out, and I didn't know if I'd ever see him again. Can't remember if it was Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. But he called me, and he said, you were right. I have been too proud to receive. And came to know Christ as a Savior, to follow Him in believer's baptism. By God's grace, He continues to live for the Lord today. I've lost touch with Him. It's been some years. But that kind of pictures it. We come to this place where we need to step forward like a little child and say, I need Christ. I cannot save myself. I cannot run my own life. I cannot do this on my own. I need a Savior. No Savior is wanted in this world. But we come to know we need Him. So Jesus says, these kids, they occupy a position of weakness, of helplessness and need, and that puts them right at the door of the kingdom of God. Why send them away? And so, as Plummer puts it, the disciples were trying to keep from the Son of God some of those who were the most fit to be admitted to His presence. The end and aim of His work was to bring people into the kingdom and His ministers were turning the most promising candidates away. Don't hinder them. Let them come. And in the complete opposite direction of the disciples, then in verse 16, the blessing is extended He took them in His arms and He blessed them, laying His hands on them. Taking them into His arms, placing a hand of blessing upon their heads, He blessed. The Greek again is instructive here. It speaks of an intense blessing. It's not a word typically used. But it's used. it indicates His wholeheartedness, His enthusiasm, His warm blessing of these children. Probably it indicates in some level too just how much He's going against what the disciples were doing originally. And they didn't forget it. We're reading about it. We note again that this was an unmarried man. Sadly, our world has grown so corrupt sexually that such behavior tends to raise suspicions. Or perhaps on some level it's just awareness of the dangers that come. But the setting is public. The purpose is pure And Jesus displays warm physical affection for children, and we should as well. Particularly in that way, when it is public, when it is pure, of course, always, and when when we are able to display warmth through physical affection. There's a caution we need to have in our world, and we recognize that caution, but let not that caution send us away from touching children. That, I think, is a wrong pursuit. That is a sad development. They need our touch. They need our warmth. They need that grace in their lives. And Christ gives that to them in blessing, something we may even consider, particularly as parents, to place a hand on a child's head and to speak the blessing upon them, that the Lord would keep them and cause His face to shine upon them, to give them peace. I want to just tag in for a moment also into the culture of that day. What's happening in this house as Jesus welcomes these children? Probably a bit of an annoyance in a lot of ways, but He warmly welcomes them and draws them in. Let's just picture, let's like pan out away from this little house and see the world in which this is taking place. We speak ill of our culture and our times and the abuse of children. We don't have anything like what they faced on some levels. As we look at the Gentile culture of those days, at the moment that Jesus is drawing children into His loving arms, there are countless newborns that were drawing their dying breaths cast away on a garbage dump, unloved and unwanted. 
Their form of abortion seems so cruel to us. But it was to expose a child to the elements. In other words, just to set the kid outside, this newborn baby, just set it outside and let it die. Due to the elements, due to starvation, many, many children died that way. The only difference between their form of abortion and our culture's practice is that their way was safer for moms. But in such a cruel world, we see our Savior's example and the reminder that all people are created in the image of God But the most significant point here being, of course, that all people, including the young, are to be ushered to Jesus. And we, as Christ's followers, are to find ways to usher them there, to encourage them there, and to never hinder that access. What I want to do here in the moments that remain is just a start. I would love to have done much better on what I have to present to you here. And I I hope that it is a starter of a conversation that we can continue to pick up and take forward as a church. So I'll throw some things out and we'll see what sticks here by way of application. But I want to ask the question for a few moments as a church thinking together on this matter. How can Eden Baptist Church honor our Savior's spirit toward children by ushering them to Him? How can we avoid hindering their approach to Jesus as a community? And this affects every one of us on some level. This passage sets the big picture. That's not hard to see. But obviously it does not address the specifics as we apply the truth that Jesus displayed in our setting here today. But let's stop and think about application. In what ways may we labor together as a church to nurture an environment, nurture an environment that draws our children to see Jesus in His glory and in His saving grace. Let's talk for a moment just about the very environment of our church. I have three sub-points under this idea, not that they need to be noted, but just to chase them and put hooks out there. The first is that may we emulate our Lord by laboring together to create an environment, a church-wide spirit in which children are valued, loved, and protected. May that be our endeavor. And I think that starts at every level. Baby showers then, when seen from Jesus' instruction, baby showers that we have here in the church are not ritual social gatherings designed to make moms feel good about themselves. They are celebrations of the gift of life. They are gatherings to remind one another how much we value and honor children as a heritage from the Lord. They are an early welcome into our assembly of a new boy or girl and a recognition of the church's commandment, the church's stewardship to usher that child to Christ. So I think it would, I would encourage us as we think of baby showers, there's a lot of reasons you need to miss them from time to time. If everybody came, I suppose we'd fill the building. I don't know. But not pressuring anybody to go to those, but don't go to a baby shower because I don't have anything better to do tonight. Don't go out of some sense of obligation that I need to show up. Go in this spirit. This is a child that God has placed under the stewardship of our church. I come to recognize that, to celebrate that, and to say, I want to bring that child to Jesus, however it pertains to me. Nursery workers, do we realize and how we thank you for the work that you do to allow us to have this conversation right now, (laughs) which would not be happening, I don't think, if it weren't for our nursery right now how we thank God for the work that you do. But our nursery, do we realize, is the first place that as a church we communicate to infants that they are loved, that they are welcome in this church. I realize they're not catching that as they go into, across the door into the, church, into the nursery. But in the nursery, our children first learn that they have many mothers and grandmothers. 
in our nursery, they learn that we see it as our duty and stewardship that this is a child that we love and that we care for. Nursery workers, you play a vital role in that reception and in that message. Secondly, may under environment, may we emulate our Lord by laboring together to diligently teach God's truth to our children. And what an environment we do have to this end. Much to develop and grow, but we thank God that this is not something that we have to begin even in that nursery, as songs are sung and stories are told and prayers are often offered, talk about the Lord, in fact, nursery workers, to one another, to the children. You have no idea what sticks. But certainly in our Sunday morning Bible classes and our Wednesday night ministries, parents must not rely exclusively upon teachers to train their children in the Scriptures This is the job of parents, certainly, but what a blessing it's been in my life to have four children grow up in this church under the care of teachers who love God's Word and are seeking to diligently teach it to the next generation. I thank God for that heritage. I thank God for that story in our family. I thank God for those partners in the Gospel who teach that Word week in and week out. May we hold... May Eden Baptist hold a place in the memory of our children as a place where God's Word was taught accurately. It was taught diligently. It was taught unapologetically and winsomely by teachers who were concerned for the souls of their children, who communicate that concern and come every Wednesday night and come every Sunday morning with a sense, I want to bring my class to Christ. I want to usher them into the presence of Jesus, His glorious presence, and to see Him there. It's a slow drip process, isn't it? Week by week, labor by labor, hour by hour in preparation, and moment by moment, keeping control of that class and keeping things in line. But little by little over time, we usher them to the feet of Jesus. And what greater work is there? May Eden Baptist be remembered by our children as a church where games and fun were a means to a vital end, a way to draw hearts to the priority of the Word in all of our gatherings and activities. And may Eden Baptist be a place where the centrality and the rule of Jesus Christ is an integral aspect of every area of our life together. Our focus should not be to make children feel adored, It's not our primary focus. We should not labor to assure them that they are the center of the world. There's a bigger agenda than that small, twisted focus of some churches, frankly. May it not be ours. May we teach them that everything is not all about them, but is all about the Savior who taught us to love God with all of our heart and taught us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. May this be a home where children read the Bible, learn the Bible, see us pray, and join us in prayer. May that be here. May this be a home in which adults speak of Christ and live in obedience to Him and where our children see the life of Jesus lived out and displayed in our lives. We want then for the environment to be one of outward focus, one of a focus on God and His glories, and one of a focus on others that we love as believers and others that we love as the lost and point to Christ as Savior. May they see that here. May we emulate, thirdly, our Lord by blessing our children with focused attention and affection across generational lines. May they see in the elderly in those of their parents' generation and in the children a few years older than them, may they see the love of Christ. May they experience a love that runs deep enough that we do not merely ignore their misbehavior and immaturity, but a love that is willing to do the hard work of gently steering them to maturity. To be a voice that is corrective in a loving way, not just simply say, you're the center of the universe, whatever you do is fine. 
May they experience an affection that not only tolerates but welcomes and interacts with children whenever we gather as a church. Grandparents, it's not just about your grandchildren. It's about the children of this assembly. Love them. Touch them. Draw near to them. They, you might freak them out. Keep working. Keep working. They need you. Let me talk just briefly about conversion. And I want to put this in two polar opposites. And I'll emphasize the first, and that is that churches can hinder children's approach to Jesus by proclaiming an incomplete, simplistic message of salvation. It might not seem like a way of hindering. It might seem like a way of bringing children to Christ. But if we're not careful, we can actually hinder the work. Perhaps I exaggerate the point to make the point, but we must never follow the pattern of scaring children with hell and then saying, you don't want to go there, do you? Pray this prayer, ask Jesus into your heart, and you won't go to hell. Is that the gospel message? Is that an assured way of bringing people truly, young people truly, to the feet of Jesus? Or is that getting a response? No one really knows what it means to ask Jesus into your heart, but it simplifies a matter for children. That simple picture of the door and Jesus comes into your heart. What does that exactly mean? I'm not sure I know what that means. I'm pretty sure that most little children don't fill in the right blanks. Now, I, I don't mean to be offensive, and I know that on some level there are people who are converted genuinely forever and ever, amen, by asking Jesus into their heart. But it's not that prayer to invite Jesus into my heart that saves, and I think it would be wise for us not to hinder the approach to Christ by substituting a simplistic line such as that. Nor should we claim that, for instance, Romans 10 guarantees that any child who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that what Romans 10, 9, and 10 says? Yes, and gloriously so. But Romans 10, 9, and 10 happens to be in a book called Romans. And it happens to be in a larger section called the New Testament. And it is never wise for us to draw out a single verse like that and to think that that speaks everything about salvation. We need to present the gospel to children the way that the Bible presents it to all of us. There are the historical facts coupled with the theological meaning that a child must embrace by faith. And think of it, and again, I don't want to, I'm not seeking to be offensive if I'm pushing you here, but come with me, we're just talking about it, but think about it. I present the gospel to a child as ask Jesus into your heart and you won't go to hell. I can actually do that and not land on the gospel at all. Not really. Which pertains again to the historical truth with theological meaning that Jesus Christ, the sinless, eternal Son of God, took on flesh and willingly died on a Roman cross, suffering the penalty that we deserve for our sins, dying in our place. That's not rocket science, but it's also not simplistic. Secondly, that Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death and securing our future resurrection and defeating Satan's rule. We need to bring the gospel to our children. We don't want to hinder their access by putting roadblocks of simplicity in front of them. The biblical approach to the conversion of children is to keep proclaiming the gospel and explaining to our children that everyone must repent of their sins and throw their absolute trust in Christ for salvation. We just continue to pronounce that truth. If a child makes clear when he or she was saved, praise God. But keep proclaiming the gospel even then. If a child prayed a conversion prayer, praise God and keep proclaiming the gospel. Point to Jesus, not to the child's experience. 
It, it, it is to me sad to have witnessed this on occasion. A parent writes in a Bible a date that a child prayed a prayer and the child's only memory is what's written in the Bible, in the flyleaf of the Bible, not the experience itself. Or the child is asking, can you remind me of this experience? What have, they don't even have a memory of it. Come to the gospel, not to the child's experience. And that, that experience may be dramatic, and you praise God for that. It may be simple. God brings people to himself in various ways. But may we, as we labor, not hinder their access to Christ by getting off track with what the gospel is. So the balancing point, secondly. On the other hand, churches can hinder children's approach to Jesus by failing to call for repentant trust in the gospel. We don't want to go so far as to say we just talk about the facts. We just announce what the Bible says. No, we do need to call children to repentant trust in the gospel. In our appeals, to be careful not to pressure with our expectations, to be careful not to back a child into a corner that gets them to respond to us. But avoiding that, they must know that they need to turn to Christ. Following Jesus is a decisive move. It's not something that just happens to you by osmosis in the spiritual context of a church. It is something you come to a place of decision. That decision is not all that there is to the equation. and Some would like to turn it that way. But there is a moment, there is a place, at least theoretically, of turning to Christ if we don't know precisely the time not enough to talk about what Jesus did in the abstract. They must learn that repentance and faith are a necessary response to the gospel. Now let's talk for a moment about baptism. We're getting close here. But again, the two sides. One, we can hinder our children's approach to Jesus by baptizing them too young. This is perhaps most clearly seen, at least in our view as a church, in infant baptism. It is the faith of the parent, not the child, that is at issue in infant baptism. There was an Anglican priest in Africa that told of coming upon a village that was being burned down by militants, burning down this Christian village. And he was walking toward it, and a terrorized mother came running toward him with infant in hand, pleading that he would baptize her child in arms. Few parents face such a traumatic situation, but the attitude is often not very dissimilar. It's almost like magic. Just get this child, put some water on this child's head in the name of the church and all will be well. We wouldn't go with that particular response, but we can have the same kind of fear as we usher children too quickly to the waters of baptism. John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 make it clear as we come back to the idea of infant baptism that it is not by the will of a father. It's not by the will of a family that we come to salvation in Christ. And yet infant baptism is exactly that. It's the will of the parents for the child. And in my opinion, one of the great horrors of infant baptism is that it's all about the will of the parents. And a child never knows the joy of standing in the waters of baptism and saying, I am a follower of Christ. Virtually all of those who are so baptized never have that experience. Now that doesn't make infant baptism wrong. I think we could argue against it on a lot of other lines, but we who believe in believer's baptism can almost do the same thing with our children. Not going to look exactly the same way. The child has to be old enough to make a profession of faith, but we can almost get there. I saw evidence of this with one denomination in the United States being studied recently, reading that this week, that the number one demographic that's getting baptized more than any other, that's making the progress more than any other, is children under age five. So there is, a, there is a culture, particularly to the southern half of our country, but there is a culture of bringing three- and four-year-olds upon profession of faith to the waters of baptism. I realize this is a sensitive issue, and I realize there's, good, there's 
quite a bit of difference between godly people. But we, we rightly guard the gate of our membership from adults who do not effectively articulate the gospel or who fail to show signs of faith. What justification can we find for not exercising the same kind of caution with young children? We have a double standard. You're 25 years of age and you come to the church, we're going to find out if you know Christ, if you're standing for Him, if you, have, if you really are following Him. But we, some churches at least, are, according to this survey, taking three-year-olds, hearing that they've made a profession of faith and then leading them into the waters of baptism. I think in that instant we can actually hinder we can actually hinder the approach to Christ. But we should ask, is a child ready for baptism who has yet to understand that following Jesus is not popular? Is a child ready for baptism who has not come to understand that following Jesus is not a safe enterprise, even in this world? That the world crucified Jesus. Is a child ready for baptism who does not demonstrate to the assembly a love for Christ, some measure of holiness, some measure of desire to point others to Jesus? Is a child ready for baptism who could not give the first line of evidence of the deity of Jesus or demonstrate the simplest knowledge of where Jesus is right now and if he's coming back? And we could go on and on. So the other half of concern is not to hinder children to come to the waters of baptism who are ready. I don't know how we work all of that out in the sensitivities of it and not wanting to crush a child's desire to obey Jesus, but let's remember as I kind of tie this into last week's sermon that coming to the waters of baptism is in part a work of the church together as a community. That's not to say that every child who comes has to be known by everyone in the church, has a testimony that's clearly displayed by everyone in the church, but we want to lean that way. For the church body to be able to say there is evidence here that this is an individual who has understood what it means to follow Jesus. And then we bring them to the waters of baptism, not simply as a personal decision, played out before the church, but as a church-wide embrace and bringing of the child to Christ. One of the dangers then, and this is virtually all that I'm saying, is to walk a child through one of the most important moments of their spiritual journey and they hardly remember it. They're so young that its implications really wash right over their head. They're far from ready to benefit from the church's role of assuring them of their salvation. We can hinder children from following Jesus by restricting them from baptism, but we can also hinder children from following Jesus by not being wise as we shepherd them there. So, Mark chapter 9 and verse 35 again. He sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In the reception of our children, in ushering them to Jesus, may we never forget as a church that we are receiving Christ himself. Jesus isn't in that child in some unique sense that he's not in an adult believer. That's not the point of it. The point of it is we stand for Christ and we counsel and usher and encourage them wisely into the presence of the Lord. And may we remember then in all of that that none of this makes any sense apart from the fact that God is our Father. That through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we enter into the family of God who embraces us as His sons and daughters. And may we then labor, not in a personalized way, not in a self-oriented way, not in a way certainly that worries about what has been, 
But may we labor then for children as the representative of Christ to wisely together as a congregation be truly bringing them to the feet of Jesus. Blessing them in this way. Let's ask the Lord's help directly. Lord, we need you. I I pray in behalf of any who maybe struggle with what I've said to recognize that some of these ideas are just my words, my thoughts, my application. May we together as a church come around these ideas and grow in our capacities to um, pursue what is right and what is best. We do not pray that children would delay baptism out of deference to our church or to us as adults, but we pray that you'd bring them at an early age to the knowledge of Christ, to an early age of baptism, but to one that is appropriate to know that they truly have come to follow Christ. We need help to this end. We pray for it. We pray for those who work with our children uh, uniquely and routinely in the teaching ministry of this church. Lord, we pray for each one of us as we pass uh, in the halls of this building, as we gather here in your presence, may we exude love for children. Not the love that tells them that they're the center of the universe, but the love that points them to Christ. Help us as a church to this end. For those who know not Christ as Savior, I pray that you would draw them as children in utter spiritual need to your feet. And may you grant salvation this day. For our children's salvation, we pray. In your time, according to your ways, may we be wise stewards, drawing them forward to know you and to walk with you as far as lies within us. God, we know that we cannot break the hard heart of a child who rejects you There's nothing that we can do. But I pray that we will do nothing to hinder that child's knowledge of the gospel. Bring them to Christ and bring those children who have gone through the teaching and ministry of this church, have left and have now walked away from Christ. We're thankful there aren't many of them. But we're also very concerned for those who have gone this route. Bring them back to what they've learned and heard. Bring them back to Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. Protect them, watch over them, and draw them back as a prodigal child to Christ. Lord, for those that are among us, we plead for their salvation and for your grace in their lives and make ourselves available as your stewards to be faithful to this calling. Thank you that Jesus taught us this. And as we labor to apply it, even where we disagree, May we do so winsomely and graciously, always seeking to love children in the place of Jesus and to usher them to him. Through Christ we pray.